Well, hi. It's great to be back. I'm still sort of jet lagging, so if I fall asleep halfway through our time, just shout or something and wake me up. It was a great, great time away. Thank you for your prayers. Um, had uh, also, before we go any farther, just want to thank Larry Moyer, George Cotter, and Emmanuel Christian for your ministry here. Uh, uh, in my absence, such a great privilege to have capable people uh, handling God's Word, a real privilege. Well, it was a great, great time. Uh, for those of you that maybe don't know, I just got back from about three weeks in Israel and Egypt. Did some filming for about the first nine days, uh, some filming for my uh, my website, my ministry, my business, uh, which was r really did really well. Egypt was part of that. I'd never been to Egypt before, and that was uh, quite an eye-opening experience uh, in many ways. I'll share some about that next week as we talk about Exodus. But um, anyway, it was <laughs> it was. Um, Disappointing in some ways, but in some ways when you wrap the Bible around it, it was fantastic. And the tour, of course, uh, to Israel, uh, we led a tour that went uh, about 10 days, was really good. It was such a blessing to be able to once again go throughout the, the lands of the Bible and to open the Bible in the very places where it happened. And it's not just the woo-woo feeling of being where it happened and reading your Bible where it says Jerusalem and looking up and seeing Jerusalem, that's nice, but it's not just a vacation. It's not just a vacation to the land of the Bible. It's, in a sense, what makes a tour to Israel so beneficial is that it gives you a context of the Bible. The benefit of, of taking a tour to Israel isn't um, the tour to Israel itself. It's what it gives you after you're back. Because it gives you a perspective on the Word of God that you cannot get any other way, very frankly. It, it opens your mind up to the reality that you really, we really have a faith that is rooted in history, it's rooted in time and space, at a place that actually happened, and a place that has a future, a place that God has chosen. It gives us a great understanding, a greater understanding of the Word of God. Well. It's great to be back. We finished last time we were together, Second Peter. And I don't know if you've realized it, but in the couple of years, I guess, that I've been teaching, we've gone through three books of the Bible as well as a few other uh, miscellaneous uh, topics. So to start another series, I thought, well, what can we do? I thought, well, let's just go through the whole Bible. Now, don't worry, I don't mean that we're going to take it verse by verse starting with Genesis, but what I thought might be a kind of a unique approach is to take a single message from every book of the Bible, starting obviously with Genesis and would take us 66 Sundays to go through the whole Bible. It'd be just sort of a, a whirlwind tour, not so much an overview because it will be, will be, we'll drill down on particular parts. But there are parts of the Bible that I would say you probably never heard a single message from a particular book. And that's a shame because the Bible, the whole Bible, as Paul said, is profitable and is good for teaching, rebuke, correcting, training, and righteousness. That includes Leviticus. 
That includes the minor prophets and some other things that we've honestly heard very little from in our years in church. So Genesis, that's, uh, that's quite a softball to start swinging at, but uh, there, there are a few fastballs coming too. So let's turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and let's look at a message from this wonderful first book. If you ever wonder why we have the Bible, why do we have this book? I mean, the knowledge of God, we don't need the Bible to have a knowledge of God. The creation gives us that. We see in creation his invisible attributes and his, uh, his power and his majesty in the creation. So we can, we can sort of figure out the existence of God or a God just by looking at creation. Most religions are aiming at that, and even some religions actually worship the creation because it's, it's so majestic and powerful, it reflects his divine attributes, but it's sort of like worshiping a shadow. You don't worship a shadow, you worship what casts the shadow. God casts the shadow of creation. So we don't need the Bible to understand that there's a God. We don't even need the Bible to understand that there's right and wrong because our conscience does that. Our conscience trips us every time we do wrong. You don't have to be a believer to have that. You, you can be an unbeliever and have a conscience that offends you because you realize you've, you've done wrong. So if we don't need the Bible to understand that there's a God, we don't need the Bible to understand that there's right and wrong, what do we need it for? Well, the purpose of creation and the purpose of our conscience is not to convince us that there's a, a God and right and wrong, but to convince us our culpability before that God. The creation and our conscience tells us that we have a problem, and that is, how can we be right with a God who is holy? Now, I'm not making up this logic. This is Paul's logic in Romans chapter 1 and 2. But as we start in Genesis, it's helpful to ask those questions why do we have this book? The beginning of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, tells us, without wasting any time, why, it, why it's here, why we have this book in our laps. Genesis. When we speak of Genesis, the genesis of something, we speak of its beginning, whether it's the genesis of a university or an idea. That's what the word means. In fact, the Greek word, we get our, our title, Genesis, from the Greek term that means beginning. Even in the Hebrew Bible, the, the words in the beginning, or in Hebrew, it's bereshit. That's what, that's what the Hebrews call the book of Genesis, bereshit, and it means in the beginning. It speaks of the beginning, not of God, but of God's relationship with us. So let's read the first few verses here, familiar and yet essential for laying the groundwork. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day." You ever realize God created light before he created the sun? 
interesting to fathom that. And I don't know your view of creation, and I'm not, well, maybe I am trying to persuade it a little bit, but you have a view of creation that you walked in with. And I don't know if it takes a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis, but if it doesn't, I would sort of challenge you because on what basis can we interpret the whole Bible and yet pick parts of the Bible that we don't take literally? It's, it's, I, to me, that's an inconsistent uh, way to approach the Bible. Your view of Genesis is going to determine your view of the whole Bible, so choose carefully how you want to interpret Genesis, because if you want to be consistent, the whole Bible gets the rest of that interpretation. I'm reading a book right now that was recommended to me by our tour guide in Israel. I've heard about it for years, but I've never read it. I thought, you know, I finally probably need to read this book. It's called uh, Jerusalem, A Biography. It was a number one bestseller, and somehow it slipped off my radar for a while, but I've started reading it, and I hadn't gotten two or three chapters into this book, and it just made me mad because I thought, first of all, he, he introduces so, so the, the history of Jerusalem by using the Bible as a source because if you're going to talk about you know, the history of Jerusalem, there's not a lot in history outside the Bible. And so he uses the Bible as a source and yet continually undermines it while he's going through. So say, which way do you want it? You're going to use the Bible as history, or are you going to use the and but but pick apart pick out the parts you don't like? It's just inconsistent. And as Christians, as we come to the Bible, God doesn't give us that option. It's not a buffet. <laughs> it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's the meal you get. It's a it's a 66-course meal, and you can't skip a course. You got to eat it all, or you don't eat any of it. So. Notice, as we read through this, it says at the end of verse 5, there was evening and there was morning, one day. So, again, I don't know your view, but there is a, a strand of interpretation that sees that God created the world, not in the six days that the Bible says he created the world, but in six eras or epochs or ages of creation. Um, sort of the, the day-age theory is what it's called. And I, really, my goal is not, as we go through this message today, really isn't to, to get on this, to, to lean into this subject a lot, because uh, it could be the whole, the whole talk, the whole time. But I'm just challenging you, if that's your view, how can, be consistent, because the Bible doesn't take that view. The Bible clearly interprets the, the one day as one day. It even says evening and morning. It, it helps us understand what one day is. We're talking about one day. In fact, in Exodus 20, when the Sabbath is given as a command, the logic by which uh, God's people are told to take that seventh day off is because that's what God did. There was a literal seven days in creation, or six days, and the seventh God rested. And in a literal sense, we're to do the same thing. So anyway, if you want to argue about that after class, uh, I don't. <laughs> but anyway. Also, by the way, evolution, just one more little dig here, evolution doesn't fit 
in, uh, in a Christian worldview because evolution requires death for a species to evolve. And there was no death prior to Genesis 3. There was no death in the creation week. So uh, we can't squeeze that in. So I take it that the... Uh, so what, but what do we do with the fact that the world appears to be millions of years old? Great question. And the Bible actually gives us an answer as we observe that, that God created a world that looked old but wasn't. Think about it with Adam and Eve. He didn't create embryos in the womb. He created adult male and female who were able to reproduce from the word go. Same with the animal kingdom. He created something immediately that had the appearance of age. Jesus did the same thing, by the way, in his first miracle when he changed water to wine. Uh, what does it take to make wine? It takes time. It takes a long time. In fact, this was such good wine that they said, wow, you brought out the best wine. And yet it was five minutes old when they were drinking it. But it had the appearance of age. It's the same with the earth. It's the same with the earth. Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, is often doubted by critics as a myth, as, as legend. But the rest of the Bible tells us that it's history. Um, the Bible is not a history book. But what it tells us of history is true. The Bible's not a science book, but what it tells us of science is true. Its goal is not history exclusively or science exclusively, but it has another view. And it's sort of frustrating when we read Genesis 1 and 2 because we, we have a lot of questions about creation that Genesis 1 and 2 don't answer. We want to know a, a lot of more details that God doesn't give us. But the first words of the Bible show that for whatever it is that we're wondering about, God is outside of creation, that he is eternal. The first words show that God is outside of time, he is outside of creation, because he initiates it. God is supernatural, that is, he is above nature, and he continues to be above nature. This is why the Lord Jesus could defy nature in his miracles. It's supernatural. This is his nature to be supernatural, to be above nature. So God creates uh, by simply speaking. We read that light was created simply by him saying, let there be, which is amazing. He just simply spoke it, and it came into, be, came into being. And then he creates the animals. Look down at verse 22, what happened after that. He tells them, verse 22, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Note, he blessed them. He blessed the animals and commanded them to multiply. And then God's crown and creation made only after everything else was made, in fact, the purpose for which everything else was made, down in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Once again, 
the emphasis, blessing. He blessed them. He blessed the animals. He blessed people, and he challenged them. He commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, we get into Genesis chapter 3, and the wheels begin to come off of this creation. And again, we aren't given the question, we aren't given the answer to our question, how does a snake talk? Why does a snake talk? Who is this snake? What makes him crafty? How in all that God created is very good, is there some, suddenly something very evil? Genesis doesn't answer that question for us. The rest of the Bible does, but Genesis doesn't. It isn't explained here. It's only later in the scriptures that we read that God made the angels before he made the heaven and the earth, and that some of the angels chose to rebel. I think, and we've talked about this, this uh, before. It's not even until the New Testament in the book, books of 1 Corinthians and Revelation that we're told that this serpent is Satan. Genesis doesn't even tell us that. It takes the whole counsel of the Scripture to, to put it all together. So we have a lot more questions and answers. But again, God's purpose in Genesis was to explain that his initial intent with humanity, with us, his initial intent is that we rule over his earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom of God on earth that Genesis introduces us to. And the purpose of creating mankind we're told in Genesis 1.27 is that he create, to be created in the image of God and to rule over the creation that he has made. Well, Genesis 3 is the classic, uh, the classic text for temptation. And again, it could be a message or a series of messages all into itself. But let's look at a few of the details here as it relates to the big picture. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and let's read. Uh, a couple of verses there. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. The way this is written in the Hebrew text stresses the boldness of the denial. Uh, God had told Adam, he said, you surely shall die. And the serpent literally said, not you surely shall die. I don't remember what the movie or story was, but remember that somebody would say something like, uh, you know, was it Star Wars? No, it wasn't Star Wars. It was some comedy where they would say, you should, you know, let's, uh, let's all clean up our room. Not. Remember that? I don't know what that was, but that's sort of what Satan's doing. He's sort of quoting God and then putting a big knot on it. That's what the Hebrew text is saying. In other words, the, the text is saying there is a direct contradiction. First, there is a, a doubt of God's word, and then there is a flat-out contradiction of God's word, a denial of God's word. And then, verse 5, there is a denial or a doubt on God's character. Look at verse 5. 
The serpent continues, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the lie that the serpent is giving is that God is keeping you down by giving you his commands. That his commands are restricting you, not protecting you. That his commands are for your, your, your evil, not for your good. It's, it's the lie that still continues to work today. Because if we can be convinced that there is a greater benefit for us in disobedience, then all we need is the opportunity, and we'll disobey. I don't really enjoy fishing. Um, it's just not efficient. If you want fish, just go buy some fish. But people, some people really enjoy fishing, and that's great. Uh, it's a hobby. It's, it's not just a sport. It's an art. And those of you who like to fish know that particular fish like particular bait. You can't just catch anything with anything. If you want to catch, you know, a, a bass, you use a worm. And that's really about all I know because that's all I've done. That works, right? A bass and a worm? Well, it worked for me. And, um, but the point is that the fish has to be deceived into thinking that the lure or the worm or the bait will meet his need. And otherwise, that, that fish would never bite the hook. You've got to put something on the hook. And this is what Satan does for us. He baits the hook. And each one of us, as a different type of fish, gets a different type of bait. Not every bait works for every person. But Satan has spent a long time studying humanity and he has assigned, no doubt, various imps to study you and to know what works well in your life and in my life. And you know what? It tends to work over and over, doesn't it? Because the, the, the places that we're weak, we tend to grab for that same bait over and over, no matter how many times we've been hooked. We still struggle with it. And it always seems to try to, to satisfy a legitimate need. Think back to major mistakes that you've made in your life. At the time, you thought the decision would really benefit you. We aren't attracted by the hook. We're attracted by the promise of fulfillment apart from God's word. Satan never approaches us directly. He, he uses other means, whether it's bait. Uh, in, in Genesis 3, it's a snake which in their context, I guess, was very strategic. But for us, it might be a person or a book or a class or a documentary on television with groundbreaking evidence that's not been revealed before. But if the voice we hear is denying or contradicting God's word or God's character, then we can, re we can recognize its ultimate source. And here's the scary part. We can be used by the enemy in the lives of other people too. Because the enemy used Eve in Adam's life. The enemy used Peter in Jesus' life. Peter. And so with the truth of God now sufficiently blurred for Eve here back in Genesis 3, She's forced to make a decision not based on God's word, but based on her own common sense, and she bites the hook. 
Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, here's the bait, good for food, delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open. They, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then God comes. The fruit was described, notice, as good, a delight, and desirable. What's wrong with that? That sounds great, except there's a hook in it. And the hook is that making that decision, contrary to God's word, always comes with choices. God had told them, the day you eat from it, you will die. God didn't say it was going to taste bad or that it wasn't good or delightful to the eyes. In fact, it was probably very pleasurable, but it was wrong. And God said it was. God came to them and asked them not how it tasted, not if it was good. He said, did you eat? That was the issue. And after some hemming and hawing, they both finally confessed, I ate. They pointed the finger, you know, the woman you gave me, this is what Adam said, and Eve blamed it on the serpent, but ultimately they did confess, I ate. And then verse 15, the curse is passed out to various individuals. And to the serpent, look at what God says, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here in verse 15, the third chapter of the Bible, now we begin to understand why we have the Bible. We have the Bible not to un simply understand that there's a God or that we have a conscience that we've done wrong. We are rushed through this wonderful account of creation to get to Genesis chapter 3, to, to tell us that Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 14 is the problem, and now verse 15, in the context of the curse on the serpent, we are given the first ray of hope that all is not lost that the seed of woman will bruise the head of the serpent. This is the first mention of the gospel, the first mention of the good news. In fact, the Apostle Paul later would write in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he said, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Paul is pointing back to Genesis chapter 3. The result of sin is the curse, and the curse is all throughout. The woman gets it, the man gets it, the serpent gets it, the ground even gets it because of the sin of humanity. And Romans tells us that death reigned from the time of Adam all the way up till the time of Christ. So let's take a little bit more of a sweeping view now of Genesis. If you were to just kind of fan through it, and look through look at Genesis chapter 5 you see that the sin of or Genesis 4 the sin of Adam and Eve has spread very quickly to their sons Cain kills Abel the murders of Lamech are also there chapter 5 you see the theme of death repeated 8 times so and so was born had other sons and daughters and he died 
and he died, and he died over and over and over to show the effects of sin. And so by Genesis chapter 6, we're told that mankind is completely corrupt. All this time has passed, and there is complete corruption throughout all of humanity. And so God decides to start over, floods the whole earth, kills all of humanity, judges all of humanity, except for Noah and his family. Then look at chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah, notice blessed Noah, and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that sounds familiar. We're starting over. It's the same command that he'd given to Adam and Eve, and the same blessing, that God blessed his creation and then commanded uh, them to fill the earth just as he did initially. It's a new beginning. But you'd think humanity had learned, but we don't learn. We just continue to bite that hook. And in Genesis 10 and 11, you see the corruption spreading once again. And the Tower of Babel, God had told them to spread out throughout all the earth, but instead of scattering, they gathered. And they gathered to make a name for themselves. And so God judged them by multiplying their languages, and that scattered them. Or he also may have even just scattered them supernaturally. It's not clear. But, um, but for whatever purpose, this multiple languages became a judgment. Languages keep us separate, which is sort of interesting when you get to the day of Pentecost, when now languages now are not a barrier any longer. Because the goal is to go to the nations, not to be separate from the nations like in the Old Testament. So at the end of a literal Genesis 1 through 11, now we come up to Genesis 12. We're left with a people on earth hopelessly scattered, divided from one another, separate from God. What's going to happen next? God takes the initiative. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram, or Abraham as he will be called. There's no real estate photos for Abraham to approve before he sets out. He's just told to go. Leave your land and go to the land that I'm going to show you. No model homes for Sarah to inspect. Just go. Just follow. And go where I will take you. He was simply told to leave. Why did, Abra why did God choose Abraham? Of all the people in the world, why did he chart choose to start a nation with a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old wife who couldn't have kids. It, it's kind of like, you know, the Lord coming to the marathon class and saying, all right, we're going to create a great nation. <laughs> that was their reaction, too. You'd get better odds with the lottery. In fact, the book of Joshua tells us that it was worse than that, that Abraham's family worshipped idols before God reached out to Abraham. Couldn't God find anybody better than this? Why in the world did God select Abraham? Grace. 
Why does he select any of us? The same reason. Why did Abraham follow? Because he had faith, just like any of us. So when we look at the big picture of Genesis, we see that God promised Abraham several things that that are essential for us if we think about this Abrahamic covenant. Um, Land, which we know as the, the promised land because it was promised to Abraham. Descendants, which ultimately would be the nation Israel. And then that word, blessing. Remember, God blessed the animals. God blessed Adam. God blessed Noah. And now God is blessing Abraham. In fact, God refers to blessing in these verses we just read five times. That is as many times as he's used in the whole book of Genesis so far combined. God's desire was to bless his people. But sin got in the way of that blessing and curse. The curse was there instead. And so God desires now to bless all the families of the earth. This isn't just the starting of a Hebrew nation. This is the starting of the Hebrew nation through which God will bless all nations. God's view and purpose in the scriptures from day one has always been missions. It hasn't just been Israel or the church. It's been the whole world. And in the Old Testament, he worked through Israel. Today, he works through the church. But his goal has always been the same, all families of the earth to be blessed. Now, if we take a 30,000-foot view of the book of Genesis for a second, I hope this is an eye-opener to you, because it was for me the first time I discovered this or heard it. I don't remember which. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover at least six to 10,000 years of all humanity. 11 chapters, 10,000 years. But then you've got chapters 12 through 50. That's 39 chapters that cover several hundred years and deal with four people. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. 11 chapters, thousands of years. 39 chapters, a few hundred years. 11 chapters covering millions of people. 39 chapters focusing on four people. Or you could, could think of maybe 12 tribes if you want to really drill down. But the point is that God is focusing on one person, one family, through which he will bless all families. God's promise to Abraham is ultimately a fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As the New Testament begins, it says that Jesus Christ is, how has Matthew put it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew doesn't waste any time to say God's original purpose in Genesis is about to be fulfilled through this man, Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God that he wanted to have initially, that sin corrupted. Jesus says it's at hand. It can happen if you'll simply repent. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world. That all nations will be blessed through you, ultimately through Jesus Christ. He is the seed of woman as we read in Galatians 4.4, 4, who crushes the head of the serpent. Genesis shows us that God's right to rule through one man, his earthly kingdom, was challenged uh, by the sin of man. So God, in his grace, chose to bless the world through one man's descendants. 
And Jesus' life of, of obedience basically fulfills God's purpose for man as man. You know, there's only two times in the scripture that Satan goes toe-to-toe with people with direct temptation. Only two times. The two times were with Adam and with the first Adam and with the last Adam. That Satan goes toe-to-toe because he realizes if he can get the king, as it were, to trip, that God's kingdom will be thwarted. It happened the first time with Adam. It didn't happen the second time with the second Adam, with the last Adam. Jesus was successful in that temptation. There's a little boy that described his first experience on an elevator. And when asked, after he got off the elevator, uh, somebody asked him, well, what would you think about that? And he described it this way. The little boy said, I got into this little room and the upstairs came down. <laughs> Isn't that great? And I love that because that is a picture of Genesis. We get in this room, God's blessing comes down. We get in this little room called Genesis, and all of a sudden the doors open, and we're on a totally different floor. The blessing of God comes down. God wanted to bless humanity. Sin got in the way. God starts a plan to let that blessing happen again through Abraham, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Well, here's a principle to apply this all to our lives, and it's this, that God desires to bless us in spite of the curse, but blessing only comes in the way that he's provided. God desires to bless us in spite of the curse, but blessing only comes through the way he's provided. We can get a sense of God through creation. We can get a sense of our sin through our conscience. But we can't get a sense of of how to resolve that apart from the Bible. The Bible gives us that answer. That we can have a relationship with God like he intended, like he created us to have. That the problem of sin is the problem that we've got to get around. And it's not not a problem we can get around ourselves. We can't get around it ourselves. But God in his grace reached down to Abraham, God in his grace reached down to you and to me. And he said, if you'll just have faith, if you'll just believe that my son Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then your sins are paid for, are removed. And now we can have the relationship that you were created to have. God desires to bless us in spite of the curse, but blessing only comes in the way that he's provided. We'll look at one more place, if you would, Genesis chapter 50, because the very last chapter of this book gives us a perspective that's practical as well that we need to not forget. Of course, the story of Joseph is a story in and of itself, wonderful applications of this wonderful man. His brother sold him into slavery and betrayed him 22 years earlier. And he makes a statement here in chapter 50, verse 20, that is a statement that really gives us an explanation and a practical application of the whole book of Genesis. Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? You meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good. God wants to bless us in spite of the curse. And here's the great thing. Nothing will thwart a sovereign, powerful God in giving the blessing that he wants to give if we will simply follow him by faith. Nothing will prevent that. The promises that he made to Abraham are going to happen in spite of Abraham. Have you read Abraham's story? (laughs) He blew it a number of times. So did Isaac. So did Jacob. We aren't told that Joseph did, at least in Genesis, but in Psalms we're told that God had to refine Joseph too. Without exception, every one of them was chosen by grace just like us. And in spite of all the evil that happens in our lives, the, the world means it for evil, but God means it for good. This isn't just about Joseph, it's about you and me. The evil that you've experienced in your life from family, from friends, even from your own doing. God can use that, can spin that on its head to bring about a wonderful result if you'll just trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at a bird's eye view of Genesis and we see your great sovereign plan from the very beginning is the plan that we experience today in our lives. And even though the events that we read about occurred thousands of years ago, we know that they are relevant because you are a God that's outside of time, as is evidenced by the very first verse of our Bible, that you created the heavens and the earth from nothing by simply speaking. And the God who called light out of darkness calls light into our hearts as well. That what you created in the world out of nothing, you also create in our lives. That you supernaturally caused light, the light to come on, and that we could see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And to understand our culpability before you and the the great wonder of the gospel that bridged the gap between your holiness and our sinfulness. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray for any here today that for whatever reason are still struggling with surrendering their life to Jesus Christ, trying to earn a way to heaven and a path that does not exist, that you'd reach out to them in your grace, that you'd draw them in, that you would let the light come on, and may they walk with you for the rest of their days in the context of the safety of grace and free from the burden of works. Thank you for Genesis showing us that the evil in the world will not thwart your great, grand, sovereign plan, and it will not thwart uh, your work in our individual lives either. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, Exodus.